Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you had a great Christmas holiday, and I am really glad to be back on the air with you guys. Uh, I know the last time I was on the air was at least uh, two days uh, before uh, Christmas Day, but nonetheless, um, I'm glad to be back on. I can tell you that uh, my wife and I uh, had a great uh, Christmas holiday. And uh, we each got some very nice gifts. Uh, each gave nice gifts to one another. Uh, we're very fortunate to have both sets of parents um, nearby. Um, so, you know, we don't have to worry about flipping a coin as to where we'll be uh, from one holiday to the next. Not that there's nothing wrong with the family, extended family living an hour or two away, but it is nice to know that uh, family is nearby. And uh, we also learned that, um, well, my wife and I learned that, um, that we're going to be um, become aunt and uncle again. Uh, her um, brother and his girlfriend are expecting a child, which is uh, very exciting. So um, I, we couldn't be any happier for them. But anyways, um, we did have a great holiday, and I hope that uh, wherever you all uh, may reside, uh, whether it's in the United States or elsewhere around the world, had a great uh, Christmas holiday, and I hope all of you uh, will have a great start to your uh, new upcoming new year in uh, 2023. Another thing I can just point out here real quick is I want to continue to thank all of you, my uh, fellow 101 History Podcast listeners, for being such, um, not only being such great ardent uh, supporters, but listeners. Uh, without people like you, I don't know how I could could have ever anticipated uh, getting the results that have uh, been coming in. And I don't, um, my intentions are not to brag or to flaunt. You know, yes, it's one thing to podcast, but to be able to um, sell what it is that you um, enjoy talking about, or in the case with what I enjoy talking about, it is important because it's more than just facts. It's more than just um, information. It's really about telling um, as good of a story as there is, um, even in the most um, turbulent of times um, that our world is uh, facing. So thank you again uh, for helping me um, get to where I'm at. And the best part is I don't see any signs of slowing down. So that is always uh, a good thing. I mean, yes, it's one thing to, you know, slow down and, you know, take care of other things that might be of more uh, greater precedent. But I don't see myself wanting to slow down in terms of podcasting and sharing with you all um, stories that are powerful, stories that are unique, stories that in some instances have not been um heard or um, talked about much to where you all can get um, a better story compared to what you might have been told um, from some time back. So uh, in this uh, podcast segment uh, to uh, Rebels at Sea, Privateering in the American Revolution by Eric J. Dolan, uh, we're going to be talking about the French connection. Now, I know most of you when we learn about the French and the American Revolution coming onto the side of the um, the Americans, and I will mention this briefly, it'll be more towards the end though, but but it is fair to say that when we hear of the French joining the side of the Americans in the American Revolution, it has to do with the, the Americans' uh, victory at Saratoga, uh, Saratoga, New York, that is. But of course, we now know it as Saratoga Springs. And while, yes, that victory up in uh, Saratoga, New York was important, what most people don't realize was all the uh, behind-the-scenes networking that helped um, not only 
get the French involved, but other stuff that was uh, going on. Believe it or not, if there was something else going on that played a uh, pivotal role in France's um, coming along to the side of the Americans, it had to do with privateering, folks. So, yes, a, a victory on land at Saratoga, while as crucial as that was to getting the French to come along, it is fair to say that uh, the presence of privateering and its uh, results have uh, inspired the French so much so to where we're going to learn about in this uh, podcast segment, we're going to learn just how uh, important privateering was, not just so much for the Americans, but how the French were um, inspired by um, by the successes that the Americans had along the waters. So if I tell you any more, there might not even be a need to have a podcast. So um, here we go. Let's um, get our seatbelts fastened and uh, get the show on the road for another uh, podcast segment um, topic series to Rebels at Sea, Privateering in the American Revolution by Eric J. Dolan. So our leadoff question is going to be the following. Who is uh, William Bingham? I don't know if many of you know about William Bingham, but if it makes you feel any better, I did not know anything about William Bingham. I didn't even know that Mr. William Bingham existed until having read this book. So let's find out who exactly is William Bingham. I could tell you this much. I know he, he was not um, a signer to the Declaration of Independence, but just because he may not have signed the Declaration of Independence, it doesn't mean that his contributions, as we will learn out as we will learn here in a moment, it doesn't mean that his contributions shouldn't be taken lightly. So for starters, uh, Mr. Bingham was an American statesman from uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Secondly, before America severed ties with England, Mr. Bingham attended the College of University, later known as, um, he attended the College of Philadelphia, pardon me, later known as Penn University. See, even I did not know that uh, Penn University had a different name at one time, being the University of Philadelphia. But then again, I think it's fair to say most of us didn't, but, uh, but we should keep in mind going forward that before Penn University got its name, it was uh, considered the University of Philadelphia. And it turns out that uh, Mr. Bingham graduated at age 16 in 1768. As I've said once before, and I'll say it again, remember, if a child made it past the age of 10, he or she was considered to be an adult. So, yes, um, you know, keep in mind that young men who do go off to college in the 18th century, they are taking written tests that might as well be the equivalent of an SAT test. But... We also have to keep in mind that after the age of 10, you are doing everything there is to um, learn how to become an adult, and not just uh, by going off to college, but learning um, all the essentials, um, regardless of uh, how many classes you might be taking, but also perhaps um, apprenticeships as well. So, yes, Mr. Bingham graduates from um, University of Philadelphia at age 16 in 1768. He worked for a Philadelphia merchant including investing in a handful of shipping ventures. I'm beginning to wonder if Mr. Bingham might be involved with privateering. Late, seven, late 1775 at age 23, at that time, uh, William Bingham got selected as secretary 
to, to Congress's Committee of Secret Correspondence, which later became known as the Committee of Foreign Affairs. This uh, committee sought to develop um, a relationship with possible allies, okay? Who do you think is England's number one enemy, folks? France. Is it possible that England and Spain are not on the best of terms? Yes. Is it possible that there are some other neutral European nations that may not um, always see eye to eye with England? Yes, uh, it might be fair to say that perhaps the Dutch, uh, or what we know as Holland, might not. It could be fair to say, I don't know about Portugal, but it could be fair to say that even Portugal might um, not have the best of uh, relations uh, with England. And even though Ireland is part of the United Kingdom at this time, it is also very fair to say that even the Irish do not like the British. And that's been a long uh, history of uh, some unfortunate bad blood between the Irish and the British. So, yes, uh, Congress's Committee of Secret Correspondence, um, one of its primary purposes was to um, go about um, developing relationships with potential allies, like France, with the intent to win support for the revolutionary cause. So, yes, we can do everything there is in our power to go about um, trying to uh, establish a possible alliance with a European nation like France, but isn't it fair to say that if you're going to have an alliance with a European nation like France that you need to um, be able to be uh, productive, that is, be productive on the battlefield and perhaps gain some uh, significant victories? Yes, but could it also mean doing some things out on the waters that might uh, lead to um, a possible alliance? Very much so. For Mr. Bingham, his post as secretary was rather short-lived. The Committee of Secret Correspondence gave him a top-level job by sending him to Martinique, a French colony where he went about playing multiple um, tasks. One such tasks, task rather was being an American merchant in the business of Robert Morris's firm. And remember, folks, about Robert Morris. He was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. He invested in, um, in, in a handful of privateer uh, vessels to where he um, had instant success. So that's whom um, Mr. Bingham is um, going to be um, working for, but he's also going to be doing a private business to um, going behind the scenes and acquiring uh, munitions and supplies along with gathering intelligence about France's desire to support the Americans to promoting and expanding American um, privateering uh, causes. So it's not, you know, Mr. Bingham's just, just not going to show up in Martinique and say, oh, my name's Mr. Bingham. This is where I'm going to be working, and uh, if you need to reach me, this is where I'm at. In other words, Mr. Bingham doesn't want to, he wants to make a good impression, but if he sells himself too much, it could um, raise red flags amongst those in Martinique who, even though it's a French colony of Martinique, but for all we know, there could be uh, people 
in the French colony of Martinique that could be posing as double agents. In other words, they may claim to be on the side of the French, but they could be um, harboring secrets to uh, British authorities high up about uh, what is going on uh, within the French colony of Martinique. As crazy as it sounds, folks, you have to be very, one has to be very careful about how they go about uh, disguising themselves. If they give themselves away, not only are they going to be forced to share information with the enemy that's uh, classified, sensitive, but they could also be forced to uh, turn over names of those above them whom they are working for. So it's a very delicate situation nonetheless. July 3rd, 1776, uh, Mr. Bingham departed Philadelphia. Folks, that's one day before Congress officially approved um, the final motion in going forward with severing ties with severing ties uh, with England altogether. So I can't imagine being in Mr. Bingham's shoes in departing Philadelphia. Of course, little did he know that the day after would be that official day, and I don't think most people would have known that if they were alive at that time, but 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 to me it's hard to believe that he's leaving Philadelphia one day before the day before July 4th where history will be officially made in being the day that we officially declared our uh, separation from England, no going back. So Mr. Bingham departs Philadelphia to Martinique aboard a Continental Navy ship, Reprisal. He arrived three weeks and three days afterwards on July 27th. Man, you know, to get from point A to point B uh, by 1776 in three weeks, three days, that's actually not bad. If he was going across the ocean 3,000 miles to England or France, it would have taken him a lot longer. But three weeks and three days. I, it, you know, of course, we must be reminded of the fact that sometimes there's no guarantee that one might have even made it to their final destination, even if it turned out to be a, a three-week voyage, there's no guarantee you might make it there alive. But Mr. Bingham did, uh, thank goodness. And he was greeted with a warm welcome. And France, even before Mr. Bingham arrived to Martinique, France was already providing Americans with money and arms. Okay, arms, that's another word for muskets, rifles. So France is secretly funneling the, uh, the Americans with money and arms. But yet they have not officially declared war on England just yet. As for Mr. Bingham, he helped oversee the consistent practice to where arms were transferred without any issues. That's good to know because um, if it does turn out where there are more issues with regards to arms getting transferred over, then yes, that's just going to raise more red flags, and it's also going to um, lead to great greater inconsistency. So the less the less troubles there are, uh, the greater the likelihood that um, that that fewer that fewer non people will um, will raise uh, suspicions about anything that they might deem uh, to be illegal going on. Hang tight for just a moment. Well, as I said before, I'd say it again. Nothing beats a, a nice glass of hot tea. 
Well, how about this one, folks? How about this question, rather, I should say. While in Martinique, what did William Bingham strive to accomplish on a larger level? He sought to help create more tension between Britain and France, where a major crack over time would lead to France's eventual alignment with America, including including um, her declaring war on England, given the two European nations had been enemies with one another for countless years. Well, if I'm Mr. Bingham, yes, I would want to um, come up with um, plans, solutions, ideas to where, <laughs> yes, we would all like progress, but how about progress in creating tension between um, Britain and France? In other words, Britain has really become a big thorn to America's colonies. What if France can become a thorn to to Britain? What if France can re, What if France can uh, get some form of revenge, considering she had to forego all of her um, lands in the Ohio Territory, um, ter uh, land holdings around uh, Lake Erie, Lake Michigan, present-day Lake Michigan? France had to give up. A lot, even um, land that uh, surrounded the waters of the St. Lawrence River up in New York State. France, uh, it was one thing to have been defeated, but to have uh, been forced to give up all that land, and not just land, but uh, alliances with um, Indians or Indian nations who uh, went to war against England. And now those Indian nations are forced to uh, establish um, alliances with England all in the means of asking to be protected from further encroachment by um, white settlers. That is, uh, white settlers already living in the colony, 13 colonies, but wanting to expand westward into uh, Ohio, present-day Ohio, present-day western Pennsylvania, what we now know as West Virginia, Indiana, Illinois. As a matter of fact, prior to uh, the French and Indian War breaking out, Parliament did promise and even right after the war broke out, Parliament promised the colonies that their lands would be protected and that once the war was ended, that perhaps those lands, would, those uh, territories would still be in the hands of those whom had already invested so much. Like, think about like Mr. George Washington, whom, who owned uh, territory in what we now know as present-day West Virginia, uh, present-day uh, Western Pennsylvania and uh, Ohio. But, of course, those promises got reneged. And then, um, because of promises, um, as I mentioned a moment ago, being reneged over a short period of time, it led to um, a greater fallout with um, relations between the colonies and the crown that, um, that eventually played out uh, about 12 years later with shots being fired around the world at Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts. So, for an increase in tension to come about, Mr. Bingham opened the doors where privateers would make their presence be felt. His vessels got crewed by Frenchmen, but captained by Americans. The West Indies were, Bingham, were Mr. Bingham's target. And why would they have been Mr. Bingham's target? Well, the West Indies had a vast trade relationship with England, and it was far more valuable than 
uh, compared to England's uh, 13 uh, North American colonies. The West Indies was home to growing and producing sugar. The Europeans were addicted to sugar, and because they're addicted to sugar, that means, folks, that there is going to be an ever-so increase in demand for this um, commodity. So the Europeans' demand of sugar, it's not just so much that they need the sugar, folks, but what do you think it's needed for? You put sugar in your tea. You put it in your coffee, cocoa, jams, cakes. We're talking more than one uh, commodity, folks, that sugar can be used for. The sugar trade alone netted 3 million pounds. That's twice the amount from American imports. You know, without sugar, I don't know how uh, the West Indies might uh, survive in terms of uh, exporting this uh, commodity, um, you know, maybe 3,000 miles across the ocean to, uh, to England. Did the year of 1777 see bad losses for British ships. You all are going to be blown away at this. So let's find out about some interesting numbers here. Well, the answer, first off, did the year of 1777 see bad losses for British ships? Uh, the answer is yes. Early on in 1777, there were a handful of London merchants whom came together by sending a letter to the British Admiralty advising they lost 1.8 million pounds due to their vessels getting captured by American privateers and naval ships in the West Indies. It seems like to me, folks, the West Indies have become an open uh, game to where uh, the American uh, privateer sh ships, including naval ships, are coming in all corners to where... Um, they are more than one step ahead of the game in surprising the British with, um, with, with beating them. In other words, the British don't really have an answer now to everything that's uh, unraveling. It might be fair to say that between 1776 to 1777, if there was one thing the British really didn't have much of an answer to, it, in my opinion, it would have had to have done with these uh, enemy uh, surprise raid attacks via uh, privateering. Uh, it wasn't war so much, but it was just, um, but it was all about surprising the enemy, being that of the British, and uh, being able to uh, yield um, scores of prizes that helped uh, go about funding the war, not just short term, but uh, long term. Now, before I go on any further, I should mention one other thing about William Bingham that I was really blown away by. Mr. Bingham is named after um, a place in upstate New York that's located on the, on the New York-Pennsylvania line, not too far from Scranton, PA. Uh, the place is called Binghamton, New York. And it turns out, folks, that Mr. Bingham, by the early 1780s, was one of the richest men in America. More so than Mr. John Hancock of Massachusetts, believe it or not. Mr. Bingham uh, surveyed, uh, he had um, stakes in uh, land surveying, basically, and he surveyed the land that we know is the southern tier of New York State, uh, which we know to be of uh, present-day Binghamton, uh, Vestal, Johnson City, Endicott, uh, Waverly. So uh, whenever you go into Binghamton, you think of William Bingham, 
but you can also uh, be reminded of the fact that Mr. Bingham actually surveyed all that area of uh, the southern tier of um, New York State. And uh, the southern tier also including uh, Elmira, uh, Horseheads, uh, Corning, Painted Post. So there again, you have um, Mr. Um, Bingham to thank for all that. But uh, back to uh, how 1777 had been seen as um, a tough year for British ships. One British spy in 1777 alone while in St. Pierre confirmed 82 British ships already being captured. They are waiting to be auctioned. 82 ships, folks. That's a lot of ships. I mean... It's one thing to have a couple of ships be captured awaiting to be auctioned, but 82? That tells us something right there that the British are really um, struggling. And they I don't know if they need some kind of new leadership on the naval front. I mean, they are the mightiest navy in the world, but, but to have 82 ships awaiting to be auctioned, it's just not a good sign. So uh, the sugar ships from Barbados were often forced to delay departures as they needed larger ships or vessels like frigates to escort them home as they feared an onslaught of American privateers given their quick means of surprise attacks. So even the sugar ships alone don't feel comfortable that is from Barbados, don't feel comfortable going out on the waters alone. I don't blame their uh, captains, leaders, crew, but they need larger ships to guide them. But even the presence of a larger ship isn't just going to come overnight. That could take a couple of weeks, might take a few months, depending on the weather conditions. So it's a, it's a very sticky situation uh, for the British. 1778, the House of Lords being Britain's upper um, parliamentary chamber, learned that American privateers commissioned by none other than Mr. William Bingham himself, including others from American colonies, were responsible for capturing nearly 250 British ships whom traded with, with the West Indies. Since the war itself first broke out, the volume of British trade in the West Indies this is a staggering uh, statistic here, folks. The uh, level, or rather the volume of British trade in the West Indies fell 66% from pre-war levels. It's one thing to go to war, but even trade alone, folks, there's no guarantee that trade will flourish even amongst Britain and her um, colonies that are still loyal to uh, king and country. How so? Well, Outsiders, like American privateers, are disrupting the everyday flow of goods that should be coming in uh, peacefully without any issues, but now it is becoming, in some instances, a matter of life and death. In other words, if the goods aren't brought in on time, if the goods aren't shipped out in enough time, uh, the supply and demand um, system is just going to go completely out of whack. How about this question? Uh, did Britain believe France was violating international law, including terms from the 1713 Treaty of Utrecht? Yes. For starters, England saw American privateers as pirates and viewed France as an instigator behind encouraging, or rather I should say promoting the attack 
of their vessels without any forewarnings. The Treaty of Utrecht was signed between the nations of England and France in 1713 at the end of the War of the Spanish Succession. The treaty prohibited both nations from sheltering to aiding privateers from other countries. If involving the capture of British or French vessels, However, there was one exception. It, was a, it would have to be a very rare exception. It would have to be a quick one. One exception made in the event a foreign privateer needed direct assistance as a result of severe weather or damage to vessel beyond the, cr the crew's control, the privateer was allowed entryway into a British or French port for protection or repairs on a short-term basis. So, in other words... Okay, once you made it into the British or French port, you just couldn't sit there and decide to leave on your terms. You needed to get the repairs done as quickly as possible. And once those repairs were done, you needed to leave because the longer you stayed, it would not only be a red flag, but it would be seen as a violation of the, uh, of the provisions under um, the Treaty of Utrecht that uh, had prohibited both England and France from sheltering to aiding uh, privateers from other countries. But I'm almost beginning to wonder if um, one of the nations is doing something opposite of what the Treaty of Utrecht itself originally called for. We'll find that out here soon. Um, while William Bingham was in uh, Martinique helping oversee the privateering movement, what else took place around March 1776? As I, want, as I once said before, and I say it again, we should be reminded of the fact that there, that, that there was more to 1776 than, um, than, the colon, than the colonists, or rather the delegates in Philadelphia, all coming together unanimously on the 4th of July and officially declaring their separation from England. So... What all else do you think could have been taking place around March of 1776? The Committee of Secret Correspondence selected Silas Dean, who was a one-time congressional delegate, as Minister Plenipotentiary, which is a rank below head ambassador to France, where he would go about engaging in the same practices like uh, William Bingham was doing in Martinique, uh, Silas Dean uh, would be posing as an American merchant, focusing on trade, but yet striving to form a network with the French government where the objective, or the primary objective, was to, um, was to get France to come on board and help the Americans and become an ally. Silas Dean learned quickly how enthused the French themselves were in, in becoming um, helpful in aiding American privateers. Dean himself wrote a letter to the committee back home advising just how practical and safe it was to build and conduct trial runs of American privateers in France. I tell you, uh, it's a good thing the uh, secret committee of uh, correspondence, that the uh, secret... Um, the Committee of Secret Correspondence uh, selected Silas Dean. Uh, I'm not saying that if they'd selected someone else that he would have maybe done the opposite, but I, I just think they really did a smart thing in uh, having Silas Dean go. 
1776 saw Silas Dean get joined by Mr. Benjamin Franklin, including Virginia doctor and lawyer Arthur Lee. And interesting enough, Benjamin Franklin in 1776, folks, he is 70 years old. He is the oldest delegate who will sign not only the, the Declaration of Independence, but he will also be the oldest delegate whom will uh, go about signing the United States Constitution in 1787. Mr. Franklin was also um, the first uh, signer to of the United States Constitution, uh, the group that signed the United States Constitution. He was the first to die. Of course, Benjamin Franklin lived to be 84 years old uh, when he died in 1790. I mean, that was very unheard of for that time to have lived, to have been that age. But um, but Benjamin Franklin was a man who uh, accomplished uh, many uh, unique firsts for his time. And if you all go, if any of you haven't been to Philadelphia, I strongly recommend going. My wife and I were there back in the summer of 2021. We learned a great deal of information about Mr. Franklin uh, while we knew a lot about him, but we learned a lot that we did not know. So I uh, strongly recommend um, visiting uh, the Benjamin Franklin uh, Museum when you, uh, if you ever do get a chance to go up that way. But nonetheless, uh, Silas Dean is joined by uh, Mr. Franklin, as well as um, Virginia doctor and lawyer Arthur Lee, the three-man uh, diplomatic mission team whose purpose aimed to work out a proper alliance with France. And Congress knows that this is crucial. Besides establishing an alliance, the three-man diplomatic team requested France to allow American privateers the right to sell their prizes in France, but doing so at French ports. This would also help protect um, American vessels while privateering still remained in play. Like Silas Dean, Mr. Franklin believed as well that privateering had the fundamental means behind making war between France and England all the more inevitable. Well, I tell you, this is a, a great um, trio of men whom are going to um, make some major headways. Now we're going to talk about um, a British figure, and not just a British figure, but a, a French figure. Because the two of them um, are going to have to uh, meet with one another. One is going to insist that something is going on that shouldn't be going on. One is going to deny it. But the one who denies it is going to also engage in some, um, I don't know if I'd say manipulation is the right word, but um, acts of um, trickery to um, offset the other uh, party. So here we go. Um, who is uh, David Murray? He is the second Earl of Mansfield, or he is better known as Lord Stormont. You know, whenever I think of Mansfield, I think of Mansfield, Ohio. And there is a Mansfield, Massachusetts as well. So uh, whenever you hear of Mansfield, Ohio, or Mansfield, Massachusetts, or any town or village in America with the name of Mansfield, think of Mansfield, England. So as for Lord Stormont, he is Britain's ambassador to France. He was sent to France where his intentions were to keep an eye out for anything deemed sus suspicious benefiting the American colonies. In other words, he's got to keep an eye out to make sure that, number one, there are no red flags, but if there were, he needs to get to the bottom of it before it gets out of control. And perhaps 
deceive the French before the French could um, deceive him. So as for Mr. Murray, he saw Benjamin Franklin's presence in France as a concern. So he's already now been told by an, another British, perhaps by another British informant, that uh, Benjamin Franklin's in France. You know, Benjamin Franklin did spend time in England. I mean, this guy's ubiquitous. And in case any of you don't know what ubiquitous means, that uh, refers to being seen everywhere. But think about it. Benjamin Franklin being an ambassador, I mean, th this guy this guy has it all. So, yes, uh, for Mr. Murray, uh, Benjamin Franklin's presence in France is definitely a concern. But um, for Mr. Murray, he w is going to request a meeting with Charles... Gravier, Comte de Vriennes, with regards to Franklin's presence and the general American activity. Both men met face to face, but Vriennes found ways to deceive Stormont. How did uh, Vriennes go about deceiving Stormont? Well, Vriennes motioned to Americans very early where their privateers could dispose of all prizes if done so as long as appearance came across where the Treaty of Utrecht, Utrecht's policies were being adhered to. But Vriennes secretly allowed the privateers to sell prizes far from French ports to Frenchmen whom brought prizes in as if they were their own vessels. Other instances saw privateers stay offshore, where they portrayed their prizes differently. Vriennes allowed Franklin to commission a privateer secretly. Vriennes wanted to aid Americans out of concerns that if France did not offer assistance, then America and Britain could possibly make amends. Peace alone could ruin France's potential of instituting a knockout blow to the British Empire long term. However, the French are wanting to buy more time. In other words, yes, we want to aid the Americans. We want to get under Britain's uh, skin for, uh, the, for everything that followed in the aftermath of the Seven Years' War. But we're not ready to officially declare whether we're going to uh, side with the Americans because, you know, early 1776, you know, yes, there is still uh, a presence of British troops in Boston and there still is a siege going on that will end in March of 1776 with the British uh, evacuating Boston and it will also result in taking anywhere from 1,500 to 2,000 uh, Bostonians whom are loyal to the crown all the way to Halifax, Nova Scotia. While the British evacuating Boston was a huge victory for General Washington and the Continental Army, and many were uh, serenading Washington. They really uh, felt that this guy was the real deal. While all of that was great, Washington knew that the celebration could only be short-lived because he knew the British weren't going to back down without a fight. And of course, as we all know, and what we'll uh, be reminded of here again before uh, this podcast segment comes to, an, comes to an end, is that uh, while 1776 did start off well, it's also going to see its trials, some unpleasant ones, that will involve um, 
battlefield uh, combat that um, ultimately do have the potential to make or break uh, the Continental Army, um, not just short term, but long term. So, yes, uh, for the French, um, yes, there is a, a strong um, concern that if we don't offer any form of assistance, that America and Britain could uh, possibly end up making amends. Because early 1776, we still have that moderate faction led by Mr. John Dickinson of Philadelphia, who wants some form of reconciliation with the crown. And they are ho still hoping for um, the crown to, um, to come forward and say, hey, you know, we, for crown and parliament to come forward and say, you know, we are, are sorry for all these past grievances that we may have uh, inflicted upon you all. <laughs> Wishful thinking there. But um, no matter how hard the moderate faction um, keeps trying to extend that olive branch petition, it's like talking to a wall. They'll, they'll keep trying this until their faces are blue. But the bottom line is that, um, is that for the French, if they don't offer assistance, then the greater the likelihood that America and uh, England could possibly make amends. And that is one thing the French don't want to see happen. But it's also something that even the most radical uh, of factions within uh, Congress in Philadelphia don't want happening either. So think of men like John Adams, his cousin Samuel, they're the heads of the radical faction. You might even have men like um, Josiah Bartlett of New Hampshire, who's a part of that radical faction. So it, it's a fine line uh, that we're walking on, folks. But um, but as for the French, they're going to stay in this thing. But they're also but they're also going to play their cards right. It's one thing to formally enter onto the side of someone, but there's also an improper way of doing it. So. So the bottom line is, for the French, they're going to get this thing right, but it's just going to come with time. Did England place the entire blame for all maritime assaults along their home waters solely on American privateers? Uh, there's no question about it that they did, because in the eyes of the British, all American privateers were getting aided to being abetted Another word for abetted is assisted, that is being assisted for something illegally by the French. So in the eyes of the British, there's only one source to blame, and that is the Americans, and to a degree the French. But they know that the Americans are getting away with this because the French are aiding and abetting them. But it just so happens, folks, that the majority of the American vessels that attacked British vessels to selling their prizes in France were not exactly privateers. Some were Continental Navy ships or ships that got hired out by Mr. Uh, Benjamin Franklin himself, which got placed under the command of naval officers that were part of whom were part of the actual Navy. Now, um, such uh, vessels like the Surprise, the Reprisal, the Lexington, and the Dolphin captured 20 prizes altogether. The British government, the British merchants, to the British press all view the attacks on British ships as being deliberate by America with the support of Britain's arch-nemesis rival, France. 
1776, including uh, most of 1777, been seen or viewed as an awkward time period in America's quest for independence? I would say um, definitely that, uh, seven, that 1776, including a good part of 1777, had indeed been um, seen as a, a chaotic time period in our quest for independence. 1776 had been marked starting with highs like driving the British for like driving British forces out from Boston in March of 1776 which happened to officially declaring separation from England on July the 4th that was a that was a definite high however the lows would soon come forward uh, not long afterwards they came in the form of uh, the New York Long Island debacle campaign where um, Washington's army was pretty much obliterated and they were saved really in a sense by acts of God, mother nature. And, um, you know, Washington was smart enough to where he um, had to make one move, you know, two choices, either fight the British again or um, make a daring retreat in the middle of the night. And he made the wise decision by um, forming a, a retreat in the middle of the night where some of the men, some of his men were forced to stay back to cover ground. But uh, some of those men, I don't think, even survived. They were either attacked, uh, killed, or taken prisoner by British troops. But by the time the British troops got to the um, encampment, the, I, would, I think it's fair to say that about 98% of Washington's army, or what was left of the army, maybe I should say, had already left and um, made it over, made it across the river to um, safer ground. Had the British been able to fool uh, Washington's army, it might be fair to say that that could have been perhaps the final coup d'etat. In other words, yes, the British um, prevailed big time in the uh, Long Island, um, New York uh, campaign, but they did miss their knockout blow. Had it not been for the acts of um, God in terms with uh, nature and all, we would have been looking at um, at, a, at an end to a war um, much sooner. Then you had um, an unexpected, uh, miraculous act of God um, victory that happened being on Christmas night of 1776 at Trenton, New Jersey. The Continental Army was reborn. It was saved from complete annihilation. The mission became known as Victory or Death by George Washington. Washington got uh, valuable intelligence from a double agent spy whom um, provided him with the location in Trenton of a, a Hessian garrison post led by none other than uh, Colonel Johann Rall. The Hessians had been warned about an impending movement by Washington and his men. Of course, uh, Colonel Rall scoffed at it. He scoffed at it because he knew from um, experiences having fought in the New York Long Island campaign that his Hessian troops annihilated the Americans. He knew that the Americans were wimps. Every, as soon as they saw enemy um, muskets or rifles, they ran like there was no tomorrow. But what Colonel Johann Rall doesn't realize is that he's going to be in for a rude awakening. Of course, he did request for, pres for additional cannons, but yet Rawl himself did have enough cannons to be able to refortify 
uh, the positioning of the cannons to make the redoubts a little bit better as a means of deterring Washington and his men and to have extra lookout men. Well, Colonel Johann Rall didn't use any of that. And so by the time Washington and his forces made the journey over um, the Delaware River, and it took more than just an hour, folks. It was about a nine-hour uh, journey. It's only about 10 miles to get at from after crossing the Delaware River. It was about a 10-mile journey, but even that alone was treacherous. It was cold, bone-chilling cold. Uh, it's a miracle that more men didn't die. But we also have to keep in mind that not all the men um, went from one part of the river to the other. But in the end, um, nearly a thousand uh, Hessian uh, soldiers were uh, captured. Only two American soldiers lost their lives. There could have been a few more that might have lost their lives, one of them being a Mr. James Monroe. Um, was shot by um, enemy fire, but luckily a doctor on the American side was there, uh, or a surgeon, and he was able to uh, save James Monroe's life. Had it not been for the surgeon, we may not have ever even had a President Monroe. So the, the battle at Trenton um, was a glorious um, battle because it helped restore morale to the Continental Army. Enlistments went back up. The um, victory itself um, gave new meaning to the revolution. It also gave the Declaration of Independence more uh, relevant meaning. 1777 saw uh, the British saw the British prevail with victory gains at White Plains, New York, to Brandywine in Germantown, Pennsylvania, right on the outskirts of Philadelphia. The fall of 1777 was even better for the British. That fall of 1777 saw the British in control of New York City, including Philadelphia. What battlefield victory come fall of 1777 helped persuade the French government to go about officially recognizing American independence to discussing an alliance. Ah, none other than Saratoga, New York, or I should say the Battle of Saratoga. October 17th of 1777, British General John Burgoyne surrendered his army of 6,000 to American General Horatio Gates. February 6th of 1778, was the day which saw the Treaty of Amity and Commerce, including Treaty of Alliance between France and America, get signed. The Treaty of Alliance came into effect once war itself broke out between France and England, which happened a month later in March. The Revolutionary, the Revolutionary War now, folks, has become a world war. American privateering going forward went about making full use of French ports to outfitting vessels, hiring crew, launching raids, selling prizes. From 1778 to war's end, 150 privateers were produced by the French, but nearly 70 of them got commanded by American captains. That's about 47% right there, folks, in case you're wanting to know what statistical number that uh, resulted in. French partnership also allowed American privateers to operate more independently along the Atlantic Ocean, thus leading to an increase in the overall number of privateers. Now, folks, in 1776, there were only 34 continental letters of marquee that were uh, presented. 
The year after, in 1777, you saw there were 69. So we went from 34 to 69, so we saw an increase in 35 more letters. 1778, you have 129 letters of marquee. 1779, 209. 1780, 301. 1781, 550. 1782, 383. And lastly, in 1783, the last year of the war, only 22 privateers. But isn't it amazing, folks, to think that this alliance with the French, it's not just so much an alliance that will be um, useful in fighting battles on land, but think about just the privateering aspect, and that American privateers will be able to operate more independently along the waters of the Atlantic Ocean. To me, it's just an incredible. Um, it's just an incredible thing that shouldn't be taken lightly. Without America's uh, privateering successes between 1776 to 1777, a more difficult sell would have remained in place to where getting France on board wouldn't have come as suddenly as it did. Privateering to battlefield victories at Saratoga, really, in a sense, were the right pieces for a war whose ending over time would go about wearing out the world's mightiest empire, and that of England. Well, folks, we've uh, covered a lot of ground in this uh, podcast uh, segment, and I certainly hope that all of you who have been listening um, learned more about how the French came to the side of the Americans more than just what happened in October of, um, or rather between September and October of 70, of 1777 with what was going on up in uh, New York State and uh, Saratoga Springs, uh, just north of uh, Albany. But we do know, folks, that uh, had it not been for men like Mr. Silas Dean, who was from Connecticut, to uh, Mr. William Bingham of uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and their efforts, not only from uh, Martinique, uh, but over in France, that perhaps America, had it not been for leaders like them, perhaps America would not have been able to have prevailed long-term in getting an arch-nemesis of England's on her side. It's one thing to request a partner to have an alliance, but even a request alone can only go but so far. There has to be results, results like privateering, big and small, capturing enemy ships, prizes, and then winning a battle, not just a battle, but maybe, you know, a couple of battles, some small-scale battles to large-scale battles, because all those things alone help give um, greater meaning for um, for how an alliance can um, go about going forward, not just short-term, but long-term. Well, when I'm on the air again next, we're going to be discussing um, the following. Privateering triumphs and tragedies. I think that ought to be very um, unique. But then again, what we've been discussing this whole time has been unique onto itself. But, you know, yes, we you know often like to think of the triumphs when it comes to something of historical significance. But we do need to be reminded of the tragedies that followed. Because it was even in the midst of tragedies, we must be reminded that there were countless numbers of men whom gave it all to ensure that those not fighting the war, but yet were in support of the war, being, you know, just everyday, ordinary people, 
would still be able to live under freedom, not only in the present moment, but that those freedoms could be passed forward for future generations to come. Well, thank you for your time as always. I look forward to being back on the air with you guys. I hope to be back on the air hopefully before the end of this year, but if not, I will be back on the air with you guys uh, right after the start of the new year. Take care for now, and wherever you all may live in the world, uh, continue to stay safe. Later for now.